0: Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with... Spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information.
1: Uh, we'd like to get started with our Legal Zoom Sundance TV panel. I'm so excited to be back, so thank you LegalZoom and Sundance TV for having me back this year. Um, My name is Madhu, and I'm a lawyer for Sundance TV and AMC Television Networks. I've been practicing for about 15 years, and although my life is completely in television right now, and I love it, um, I've had a lot of time working on documentaries and independent films I was at a and prior to AMC. I worked on their documentary films, many of which were here, premiered at Sundance. And a long time ago, uh, in, a, in a life very long ago, uh, as a young associate, I was at a law firm and worked on a lot of production issues uh, with documentaries and independent film. Um, but I think more than that, uh, I just love the medium. Um, there are stories that, that can be told in documentaries that sometimes start movements, sometimes end atrocities that are happening to the environment, to animals, to humans alike. Um, And sometimes documentaries just leave you feeling good. Uh, What's most exciting today is that we've got a um, wonderful panel of directors who have dealt in each of these areas and I think you you are going to really enjoy learning more about their films and learning about some of the legal complexities that came about in making these films. So um, I'd like to introduce and uh, welcome my fellow panelists. So because I could spend an hour, I think, talking about each and every single one of um, our our panelists up here, uh, I feel like I'm not going to be able to do justice to their background. So I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves, talk a little bit about why they're here, tell us a little bit about their film and uh, their role in bringing it to fruition.
2: So We'll start with the guy without the film. So <laughs> I'm the token attorney, not the bad kind of attorney, but hopefully the good kind of attorney. And I think everybody today will kind of talk about when you need an attorney. And I'm more of a foil to kind of Back that up or support them and engage in dialogue. So, thank you for having me back again this year, and I'll pass it on to you.
3: I'm Laura Dunn, and I'm director, producer, editor of a look and see, a portrait of Wendell Berry. Um, for those of you who don't know, Wendell Berry is a farmer and a writer in Henry County, Kentucky. I think he's one of our greatest living writers today, and um, so the purpose of the documentary is just to introduce him to people and um, to draw him to light.
4: So I'm uh, Sting Johansen, and I'm the editor and co-director of Last Men in Aleppo. And uh, i am come out of uh, Copenhagen, um, where i worked as an editor for many, many years, and, uh, and this is my first time directing together with uh, Firas. Who?
5: Yeah. I'm uh, Firas Fayyad. I'm a Syrian filmmaker. I'm director of uh, Last Men in Aleppo. I'm uh, coming from Copenhagen. I live in um, officially in uh, Germany work in Copenhagen first to leave my country
6: my name is Austin Peters and I am the director of give me future which is the story of the major laser concert that happened in Havana Cuba and the film tracks several different young people who live in Havana right now and sort of highlights how they're able to create their own uh, world through sort of DIY and and um, and building their own sort of community of electronic music and technology and and art in a situation where there's not a lot of opportunities for them to do so.
7: Uh, My name is Ramona Diaz. Um, I am the director of Motherland. Um, The film is about the busiest maternity hospital in the world, which happens to be in Manila, Philippines. So the film uh, takes place um, completely in the hospital and it's a purely observational verite film and truly observational. Thank you. Um, I think
1: uh, you'll notice that we've got a lot of directors here who decided to tell their stories on a global landscape, except for Laura, whose film is very much tied to the American landscape. But I think the similarity that you see is that there is a strong connection between the protagonists or the subject matter that you guys explore and the environment that they find themselves in. And sometimes that environment has a political backdrop that they explore very subtly and at other times pretty head-on. I I think that you're going to find that more than these similarities, there's probably some similarities in the legal complications that they faced as well. So getting right into our discussion, Tom, you're, you're a lawyer, and you've actually spent a lot of time... Uh, working on legal issues for your clients, both on the transactional side as well as the litigation side. In your experience, what can filmmakers do uh, ahead of time that might save them thousands of dollars uh, after the fact if they didn't pay attention to the right things?
2: So so it's a little self-serving, right? But I think the number one thing you can do as a small filmmaker, big filmmakers already know this, is find a lawyer that you trust and start working with them from day one. Um, if you don't do that, you're going to... If your movie never makes any money, you're fine. Because nobody's ever going to care. But if your movie does well, which is the goal, I think, for everybody on stage, then uh, it's going to be a whole hellstorm if you haven't found a good lawyer and you don't have clearances, you don't have an agreement with your investors, you don't have the right contracts with your contractors, with your. you haven't bought the script. I mean, movies have been made where scripts weren't owned. And I don't know if you can imagine how much money that makes a law firm after the fact. It's fantastic. But um, I think the best thing you can do is find a lawyer early on, and one that you trust and can work with.
1: So uh, for our directors up here, would you say that you bring on legal counsel right at the inception of the process?
7: Yeah, I, I do. I, I learned you know, from my first film um, that it's the price of doing business. You have to have a lawyer at the very beginning. I mean, Sorry. just to give you advice, you may take or leave it, right? But you know what the legal landscape is. And I usually have my release forms vetted first. Whether, (laughs) when it's signed, uh, that's a whole different, um, um, you know, that's a whole different question, right? But you should get advice very early on so you know what you're up against.
5: Yeah, (laughs) I agree with her. I start without a lawyer, and later I feel like it's important to have uh, somebody to advise you and tell you this is, should be like this, and if you fall in this is mistakes, then it will effective in you in later in the film. I mean, in the process of making the film, in the, in the professional as a filmmaker. And also with the deal with the characters. If you want like, to show this is character in the film, then you want to have some deals with them be, you, for, you should, like, be very careful with the word that you will use, with um, uh, with the way that you will use them in your film. And um, for me, from my experience, yes, I know all of these things with the dealing with the characters. But for my career, I was, like, nothing. I don't know. I have no idea about what's my right and what the producer right. Then I fall with many mistakes before, and I lose, um, like, many films because have no idea just we in the film school we learn like uh, how we do with movies but we didn't learn what what's make the movies sometimes what they make the director to create it as a director
1: that's it's really interesting um can you think of uh, anything particular with uh with respect to your current film in which you know you had that aha moment that oh okay i, I need legal counsel
5: and this is film or yeah. the film before
1: oh, well either way
5: uh, actually, a lot of things, I mean, uh, uh, in general, you feel like if you, especially in my situation, I'm, I'm forced to leave my country, and then I should to start my career in different country, and a lot of things I don't know, I have no idea about how they work in Denmark or in Germany or on there, then I have to know how the contract and deal and all of these things, because in my country, I'm somebody knows like between the people so the things it's coming like normally and um, so um, just like uh, there is a lot of misunderstood about the career and the work in the career that's happened and that's make me sometimes lose my some something in my work before in one of my film that I do before i want, i don't want to go in the details because i fight a lot <laughs> <laughs> against to that with a new, with new environment and new life and to do my career.
1: Laura, I think you wanted to jump in there.
3: Well, um, it's kind of what we were talking about before. I think I'm a little... Um, I'm willing to take risks. I think sometimes that... Um, we were talking about this, but I think sometimes in documentary film, um, it would be nice if you had all your release forms and you had all your location releases and you had kind of everything lined up before you shot and you edited, but that just doesn't always happen. And we were talking about an example. I think it's helpful to get legal counsel, certainly, but I don't always abide by it, I guess is what I want to say. Because Which is <laughs> very
2: common with every single independent film company I've ever worked with. So, <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, it's good to know what you're up against, like Cremona said, but I also think sometimes you make those calculated risks. And we were talking about an example. So I had a film here 10 years ago called The Unforeseen, And um, I had this interview with a lobbyist. It's about development and um, kind of the water wars in Austin, Texas. And um, there was a a lobbyist who was one of the most powerful lobbyists in the state of Texas. Um, A lot of people said he was sort of the puppet master behind all of these laws that were dismantling the environmental laws in the state of Texas and enabling a lot of destruction of natural resources. And anyway, I convinced him to do an interview with me. Um, And he wouldn't let me film his his. Face, but he let me film his hands, and so the whole construction is he's building this model warplane as he's telling you about how he destroyed and dismantled all of the environmental laws in the state of Texas, wow. and um, it's it's fantastic, right? But but he would not sign a release form, so the film was accepted into Sundance. We had locked picture. I had investors for that film, which is something I would never do again, probably. But. Um, and we, um, we were set to premiere at Sundance, and he still hadn't signed a release form. So it was one of those moments when it's like, well, do we go for it or not? Fortunately for me, I sent him a copy of the movie, I sent him a release form, and I got a letter back, and he had signed it, and he had a little smiley face sticker on it, and it said, good work, with an exclamation mark. So I think he liked himself portrayed as sort of the Darth Vader. So I was wow. fortunate <laughs> that he liked the reflection of him as this powerful dismantler. But I'm just giving you that as an example where I think it's really good to know what you're up against, but I also think sometimes you have to roll the dice and take a risk and um, you might be right, you might be wrong, but it's part of the process.
7: But, um, on the other hand, you know, they can't sign all the releases that, that you want them to sign, but if, at the end of the day, if they wanna sue you, they will sue you right? Because I was sued by my very first subject. Um, uh, I was here with the film Imelda, I think 10 years ago too. Um, And she had, she had signed off. She saw the film before the Sundance premiere. She had uh, a few problems. Imelda Marcos is a former first lady of the Philippines. She had a few problems with the film and I told her, it's locked, it's done. And she goes, okay, we're fine. And uh, she was fine until uh, six months later, we were released theatrically and the reviews came in, and then so- suddenly they, she saw herself through the eyes of the reviewers, and they called her a pariah and all that, and she wasn't happy. And then she sued, you know? So if we, even if we had all our paperwork in place, she still sued us. Yeah, it's but, her, uh, sorry, go ahead, oh No, I was
2: just going to say, that lawsuit was much less expensive if she signed a release. If she hadn't, you would have been still touched. had to go, you know, oh, yeah still I, mean, had to go through. I can sue you if I don't like your hair. We kind of talked yeah. about it. It doesn't mean you'll win, but... The releases are, at the end of the day, the thing that lets you do what you do and get paid for doing what you do, right, as well. So.
1: No, that's a fair point. And, you know, it's interesting because even when you have months to prepare and you feel like you have all your ducks in a row, it may not turn out exactly the way you want. Um, Austin, I think, you know, we, we have, like, a very different sort of story with you Um, with your film that you directed um, that took place in Cuba, I believe that you had three weeks between when it was approved and when you found yourself on the ground. So if you could tell us a little bit about that process and sort of what kind of legal challenges that posed.
6: Yeah, well, we got approval to shoot um, this concert by the Cuban government probably three weeks before the event. So we threw this team together of, of great people who came together and, and we went down to Cuba and we sort of were writing and scouting and casting and shooting all simultaneously and there's sort of a, you know, I had never been to Cuba before but you need to lots of things are against the rules and you sort of learned that very quickly in that all of our producers down there were all Cuban and there were certain places that we weren't allowed to shoot, there were certain people we weren't allowed to talk to and and all of this was, you know, made very clear to us very early that if we were, you know, wanted to shoot on this street, we had to do it very sneakily because, you know, government officials would drive down there every day. Or if we wanted to talk to an activist, that would basically be the end of our film, that, that we would be tailed for the rest of the time we were there and we would probably be thrown out because that's just how it works. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was kind of a learning curve in, in figuring out how that all works, even down to the concert when... Uh, you know the group wanted to bring out a friend of theirs who was in town from jamaica and they you know didn't clear that with the government as they had cleared the concert and she came out and it became a huge ordeal who is this person what is she doing here her visa is not an artist visa how is she on stage and they had another friend who's the biggest rapper in cuba a huge huge star he would we would go places with him and cabbies would take pictures with him and everyone wanted to talk to him he's a huge star and they wanted to bring him out, and um, we were planning on it, and it was gonna be this great moment where he came out and performed this song, and everyone would've gone completely insane. It would be like bringing out Jay-Z or something. you know? It would be so, so massive, and right before he was gonna go on, uh, the government stepped in and said, you are not to go on stage, and he, and he didn't, and I think that that was very telling that he didn't go on stage, that he took what, he grew up in this country, and he took it quite seriously that they didn't want him on stage. So we sort of just had to adapt and, you know, try and tell that story in a different way.
1: Out of curiosity, um, did the officials that you were working with in the Cuban government, do they ask for editorial review of, of the film?
6: No, no, they wouldn't. We d- didn't have any sort of interaction with them. They, uh, We wanted to interview some of them, and, and they wouldn't talk to us, really. It was sort of like we had just been permitted to shoot this film or shoot whatever it was we were shooting. and. But we, weren't, we were kept definitely at arm's length from them at all, at all times, and I think that you know, the production company that we were working with, with all Cuban producers, they obviously have a relationship with the government. That's why they're able to do what they do, and that's why they're able to do... They have more access to the internet than a normal citizen does, and they have more access to things that allows them to you know, help us shoot this film. So they were sort of our filter throughout the whole time. If something was, something was not okay, they would flag it pretty immediately. And, of course, they were our collaborators, and, and this is their film too, and we wanted to do right by them, and they lived there. So, you know, we tried to be respectful of that.
1: Wow. Ramona, I know that when we were talking in the back, you were saying that the film that you made, Motherland, was in some ways the easiest film that you've made from a legal perspective can you talk a little bit about that in comparison to your other films where you had some, some legal issues you were dealing with?
7: Yeah, it just seemed easier. I mean, to get access to the hospital in the Philippines, I, I went directly to the Secretary of Health because I needed carte blanche access to every part of the hospital and to be there um, for a month, really, and for many hours of the day. We were there, it was like 16 hour days. And he, uh, he signed off and pretty much we were there and filming everything. I mean, if you see the film, we, we film births, we film everything in the hospital. And yeah, it turned out to be easier uh, than uh, some of the films I've made. You know, Some of the films I've made have been with like rock stars who wouldn't sign until the very end and it's a handshake deal. And you're like, ugh, okay, you know, let's hope that it really, you know, it, that they sign. And they, uh, you know, everything they did sign and then we won the, the lawsuit with Imelda Marcos. So all those, so this one, it like pales in comparison compared to like rock stars and first ladies and the truth <laughs> of the matter is you know I, I filmed very impoverished women so it's a whole other ethical problem right because you're asking them to sign a release form which they do but should you be asking them to sign it in the first place mm-hmm. should you be in the hospital filming them so that's a whole other ethical problem mm-hmm. it's a it's a whole other question in a way because they did sign it I mean, some of them, um, uh, they came in in labor and we wanted to film them. And um, we would film them. Then, after the labor, after they'd been, like, uh, they've delivered their babies, I'd go to them and say, We filmed you in labor delivering your baby. Uh, This is the film I'm making. Do you want to sign on? Um, And some of them said no, in which case we didn't even transfer the footage, you know, because I didn't want to be confused, you know, people who said, women who said yes. And women who said no, and some of them said yes. Yeah, it's fine. I said, do you understand what that means? We're going to be following you in the hospital, and um, uh, for the most part, I took their word for it that they understood. You know, but we were there for a month. Some of them, you know, later, like two weeks later, were like, no, we really don't want to be part of it, and that's fine too. You know, it's it's uh, it's documentary filmmaking.
1: Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that you say how easy it was to get access to the hospital in the Philippines, but for example, if you were making that film in the United States with all of our privacy laws and HIPAA laws, I mean, it would be almost impossible to get that that type type of film made. So in some instances, I guess, when you're filming outside the U.S., you might find some access easier. And in other instances, there's other considerations, I think, that pose greater problems. For us, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, you know, your your environment in Syria. Um, I mean, obviously, your film takes place in sort of the epicenter of, of one of the most contentious uh, political debates that have been taking over the country. And I'm sure that you dealt with some issues uh, to the extent that you can share with the audience. We'd love to hear about them.
5: Yeah. Just to think that you want to film in Syria it's a big issue because it's a start like many... Many obstacles in front of you and in in front of you um, uh, in your head, and like when we start like choosing the 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 um, the subject white helmets to be like the subject of our films, there is many media was interesting to do. This is film and um, a, a lot of list that waiting uh, to do. This is film and they have powerful and. They used their relation with the uh, function and um, in, uh, the people that they knew they know to to get that for me i 'm coming from the local environment and start like to have this is communication about what 's important to tell and why we should share the stories and This is the way that we, I start to to have the connection with the character. One of the things that make the character agree. And what I think that the character was in position, does uh, don't agree about that. It's like they don't want to show their film, their, uh, their self. They don't like the show off in front of the camera and uh, filming their work because they believe this work should be like for the good and not for, pup- for, for the public. And from this point I start to, take, to talk to them about how we can explain the, for the world how much your work is important, how much this is more effective in your life, how much it's important to, to follow you and tell your story behind all every rescue mission that you run through it, because it's like a marathon. <laughs> like, when the bomb, like when the barrel bump, I'm talking about like two, uh, 250,000 TNT inside the barrel f- through from the sky, up of the civilian's area, and this is people running to there, and our mission was like how we can catch them there, and how they agree to catch them there, because there is a woman, and children, and limbs, with this uh, as, a, uh, as a victim. Also, like this is dealing with the people who is like the victim of um, uh, in, in inside your frame. With a long conversation about important sharing the story and establishment the trust, we deal we, are, we reach like this is point. Trust, from the point of the trust and from the point of the trust of the people that they watch the movie. I told them there's the good things that the people who will watch the movie, they will do movement. They will do act to help you, to help to stop this is war. Because the goal was How a documentary film can stop the war, horrible war, can change the world, can change the mind. For me as a filmmaker, I still know that um, I I don't have any hope. I told them I don't have any hope, the the lowly hope that I have it, that how I can help the family of the the character. But my conversation with the character was about how we can establish the trust and share your story because we want to stop the war. This is what the start point, and this is the same with the, also the people that, including in the film, which is like one of the, um, this, the most effective scene, and it's like, hurt me a lot, and I still like, the process in my mind till now, i, I not easy to recover from this feeling.
1: Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, according to NPR, the White Helmets have saved over 40,000 lives. I mean, if you think about that number, it's, uh, it's sort of mind-blowing, Um, So incredible work. Um, Laura, I want to explore, you know, your your film a little bit and the process, the filmmaking process. I mean, can you you think of a story that you can share with us uh, where things didn't go totally as expected and you had to come up with a creative solution to solve a legal problem?
3: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the entire um, endeavor <laughs> was that, because I wanted to make a portrait of Wendell Berry, and Wendell Berry didn't want to be filmed, so um, it's a bit of a constraint. So I think the entire process was, um, um, how do you make a portrait of this person? How do you reflect his essence? And um, without intruding on his privacy, like you talk about trust, I think we all know that, it's like the fundamental relationship you have with your subject is what the film is all built on. And so um, Wendell Berry is 82 years old. He's written more than 50 books. He's won every award you can imagine. And he lives in a rural Henry County, Kentucky. He's very protective of his privacy. And hundreds of people have asked to make films of him. He said no every time. So I think that my avenue with him was um, was a careful one, a lot of letter writing back and forth. Um, I think, you know, legally, it's, it's not really an issue as much as it is um, just the trust, you know, that once they allow you into their world. And it was really through his wife that um, I was able to build that trust. And I said to him at the beginning, I'm not going to film you. I respect your constraint. I'm not going to try to trick you. I'm, um, I respect that. That's information about you. I'm going to work with that. That's, and so we did. So I always said, it's a film about the way Wendell sees the world. It's kind of a portrait of his mind's eye. It's what he sees what he writes, what he cares about. That's what the material of the film is. And then his voice carries you through that place. I think that um, you know, it's a, it's a far cry from Syria or the Philippines or these places or Cuba um, where there's such you know painful and visceral human rights issues happening but I'm drawn to the rural landscapes in America and I think the recent election illuminated for us why there is a disenfranchisement there there is um, there's a quieter ideological struggle that's going on there where people are losing farms and land that, that have been in their families for hundreds of years and there's an economy that's in decay and in and I think sometimes in the um, documentary film world we we don't really want to look right at home. We want to look at the wrong things happening in other places when there's places right under our eyes that are, are deteriorating and in great struggle that as we now see have great political implications for all of us so um, it's a quieter and more subtle struggle than I think some of these amazing filmmakers have tackled. Thank you.
1: Um, I'd like to open it up to the panelists to share with us a story that maybe we haven't touched upon either from the current film that you worked on or from past films that uh, you've been involved with.
6: I think something that everyone has kind of uh, touched upon and, and is really helpful in terms of releases and, and, and getting the legal work all straightened away um to, to have people to agree to be in the film and, and put themselves out there and reveal you know information about themselves and and maybe things that they do that you know are maybe you know looked down upon in other parts of the world or in certain courts of law. Um, I think that something that I'm hearing from everyone and, and something that was definitely part of our process is that it's about being upfront with people and it's about telling them what kind of film you're trying to make and what sort of you know what their participation can mean in in the scope of your film and what that can add up to and i found that in our experience you know some of our characters uh one who ran the the guy who runs the paquete danny who which is the hand-to-hand underground sort of piracy network that supplies cuba with all of its media basically you know he had to come and and Suss us out and figure out what how, how did we you, were about. How did you
1: find him? How did you find him and get him to agree to be a part of the film?
6: Uh, we were introduced to him through a journalist who had done a piece on him at Vox called Johnny Harris, who is in our film. And Johnny put us in contact with Danny, and then Danny had to come to our hotel, and uh, or our production office rather, and talk to us about you know what we were trying to do and sort of decide whether or not he was interested in participating in our film and if that seemed like a good idea for him. And I think that when we were able to be clear about what we were trying to do and and that we were trying to make a movie about what it's like to be young in Cuba right now and separate of the politics and separate of the things that we so often see uh, representing Cuba in films or television or travel magazines, and we wanted to make something that was more about being young and what what it really meant to live there in this time, I think that he responded to that. And I think that in a country where there's such limited inter- internet penetration and, and it's so hard to be in conversation with the rest of the world I think it was exciting to a lot of the kids to be able to say something that other people would hear outside of Cuba because it feels like you're trapped in an echo chamber I think in a lot of ways there and, and it's hard to like, you know, get, get your words and get your feelings out to anyone outside of this little island and I think that that was something that people really wanted to do when we gave them the platform to do that
7: amazing um, no, just a thought. You know, I think um, reality television has made our my. You know, I'll speak just for myself. My work harder, or maybe our work harder, yeah. because you really have to distinguish yourself from reality television, right? When you're talking to the people you want to film, because yeah. you have to tell them it's not about the gotcha moment. We're not here to catch you acting badly, right? It's more. It's more a nuanced uh, portrait or character uh, than that. Mm-hmm. So I think. Um, uh, yeah, and it's all very performative because that's what you know they see. It's reality it's television, so it's really int- um, for me. It's really important to, to tell the people who participate in my film that it's not about that. It's about me being there, immersed in their lives, and uh, it's not about performance. And it's about getting to something more nuanced and more gray than black and white, you know, or acting badly.
2: Tom. So not following up on that point, but something someone said earlier about not wanting an investor. Was that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, I'll just say this. So a lawyer could probably help you with that. That's something we run into with a lot of filmmakers where you as an independent filmmaker will make your film in, and you'll form your LLC and you'll do the right things. But you'll have all your money and all your production in one LLC. But a lawyer might say, well, why don't you have your investors in a different LLC and you retain artistic control? It's a fantastic way to get money. But so there are things. I'm just kind of drawing it back to, to kind of that central idea: how do we help you guys who are independent filmmakers think about stuff? But you know, finding somebody from the get-go. But strategies like that. So you're presented with a challenge. You hate investors, right? Or no, dislike no, investors? No, 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 no. Don't appreciate <laughs> investors. Artistic, investors. Inv- whatever it is. Yeah. But something about uh, investors isn't always right with you making the film, and the right counsel whether it's maybe another filmmakers had an experience but also with some documents to go with it from a lawyer can fix that
3: I think the struggle I'm talking about is not to be anti-investor we love investors right but um, it's just that I think there's and especially if you have the good fortune of being at a place like Sundance where there's a market for the work you've done and theoretically you want the film and the message to get to as many people as possible so those sales agents and those buyers are your friends and your allies and I get all that But I think my first film I had investors and I was looking at all of that and I think for me I ended up getting distracted by the idea that I made the film with money and we needed to then make money with the film and I think for me I did it differently this time. And what I, what I did is I used a fiscal sponsor, the Austin Film Society. Cheers for the Austin Film Society. And, and I had it all as a nonprofit structure, as a nonprofit. And so all grants, I worked with all grants, so all donations. Everything was a tax-exempt donation. It was made through their fiscal sponsor, and um, they take a percentage, and then you yourself retain all the ownership. But it wasn't so much about ownership and money. It was so that I could always feel, as a filmmaker, and this is how I want to always make films from now on, that my I, the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing are pure, and the intentions are real. And if the film makes money, then those resources can pay my salary and can pay us fair wages for our hard work, but then those resources go back into the place that the film was about. So that's kind of what... I was getting at, I think one other legal thing that I learned from last time around is that I made this film and thought, oh, we're going to play at Sundance and then we're going to get a buyer and then they'll pay all the music rights and they'll pay the archival rights and I don't have to worry about that. And I think that's something that green filmmaker. Learns, and then I'm, I'm also the editor, and it's really a, easy to get attached to a beautiful piece of music that's made by a kind of, you know, obscure European composer that you think for sure I can get this for $500. And they come back, and just for US TV rights, it's $25,000, you know. And that's a really that's a careful thing to think about, and um, working with an original composer. And I think archival rights is a big issue. I tend to use tons of archival from lots of different sources, and you might think that, you know, some Australian you know, version of Frontline is going to give you this three-second clip. No way, you know, they might want $10,000. And so I think what I learned is that I cleared all of my rights, World in Perpetuity, raised the money to pay those before we played at Sundance. And I have almost every song is original, you know. Um, and so those are the kinds of things I think you learn that um, if you sell your film, you have the good fortune to sell it, you know, it's you need to have all that, in line before that moment if you want to be able to maybe use some of those resources to make another film or pay your deferred wages or you know all that the finances around documentary or so that, really so
2: that's the unique thing right so now you're wearing you're not just a filmmaker you're a business person Sure. and a lot of what's yeah. the left brain right thing I don't know if that's been debunked but a lot of filmmakers are sort of left brain and focused so much on the art, the art yes. that the business side of it kind of gets let go so that's maybe another reason to have more than just artists involved initially. Sure. Um,
1: but I think I think Laura makes a great point. Yeah. Is that you know when you get uh, to the point where a distributor is interested and ready to acquire your film, they have a whole host of, uh, of of things that they need. I mean everything from music clearances to location releases, appearance releases, chain of title, title clearances. I mean you know, and
7: uh, errors... In, uh, errors. E&O uh, you know insurance, right? That's so correct, that's, yeah. Yeah, but it's a whole set of deliverables when you sign that distribution contract that costs money, mm-hmm. and that's on you, and that's something you, don't, you haven't budgeted for. You're so excited you, someone is picking up your film, and they send you the contract, and it's like, uh, like I don't know, uh, 10 pages of deliverables you okay. know, that you never expected. Yeah, that is the first tale. So you, you have to get ready and, for those things. And most things. of
1: those, I mean, most of those 10 pages of deliverables are exactly what a production lawyer would be concentrating on during pre-production, production, and post, is getting you those materials so you could check them off the list. I mean, Tom, I'm sure you've got some interesting stories of advising clients to come up with creative solutions when they don't necessarily have everything checked off the list.
2: Well, so all my creative stories ended up costing the client a lot more money? So I think that the key point is that the earlier you do that, even if you do it kind of in the beginning of the creative process, it's going to cost you a heck of a lot less than if you're getting a contract and you're having to go through and clear those things post hoc, right, after the fact. Um, So there was the, the film The Hurt Locker, right? And I went to deal with a legal issue on it, and I asked Daniel for the copyright registration on the film. And this is after it had won that kind of good award, and he kept sending me the application for the copyright by fax over and over like, a few years ago, we used fax machines a little bit. Over and over and over again, and I said, this isn't the registration. He's French, kept saying, yes, it is. And so there was no copyright registration filed and issued on the Hurt Locker when it won the Academy Award, right? You would think that, like, that's something you would pick up on early, but it didn't happen. So I think that's, that, it, you know, nobody's immune from this. And that was an independent studio, but nobody's immune from doing this. So the earlier you have your lawyer who's dialed into those kinds of things involved, the less expensive it is, which is huge for independent film budgets, mm-hmm. I think, right?
3: Yeah,
1: uh, and you, you know, we've talked a little bit about this too, is that when you're dealing with a tight budget, um, you often have to make decisions. You, know, you can't go for that song that you want that costs $25,000 for US rights only. Um, and you talked a little bit, Laura, about so having an originally composed song where you own the rights and you don't have to worry about it. I mean, what other solutions have, have our directors and our filmmakers come up with um, that solve for, for some of these clearance problems?
7: Well, it's also, I mean, fair use. You know, We have to also talk about fair use. And um, sometimes it depends on when the song comes into your film, you know. A little bit of tweaking, and suddenly it's fair use. And you won't know that until a lawyer looks at your film and says... move it a little then it's fair use or if you use it after then it's fair use you don't know that until um, uh, until a lawyer really watches and reviews your film and it's amazing how much you know you can get away with um, fair use tweaking things Remember, right.
2: Well, so that so yeah, yeah true. Right? But it's a defense to infringement. I know it is. So you're infringing. But yeah. But you're saying, well, but I've got a defense. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You can use things, and there's fair use doctrine, and it's fantastic. But it's also sort of subjective. It's not a. It's not. No lawyer ever, I think, can probably say this is a hundred percent fair use. No. Yeah. It's not. So it's not black so and white. it's you know. Just, just it's it's certainly a good doctrine for documentary filmmakers, right? But uh, right? if a One lawyer is
7: willing to write an opinion, right, oh, yeah. based on that, then you can get your errors and omission insurance, oh, yeah. and that's, that's really true. Yep. that's really what it's for, what it's about, right? To get just that warning, insurance.
2: Like, blanket fair use is like, well, it seems oh like, no, 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 not yeah, blanket. Yeah.
7: I'm not saying blanket, but it, yeah. that's why it's, it's it's important for a lawyer to look at your piece to see what's fair use or that's what great. could possibly be fair use. If only you tweak your film. A little yeah, bit. Sure, sure. I also, creative. I,
1: mean, I also think that music itself poses its own unique set of problems. Austin, you could probably talk to this a little bit with, uh, with your film.
6: Yeah, sure. Well, you know, so we went down to Cuba to make a, uh, a concert film about a DJ group. And they play songs that they wrote themselves, and they play a lot of songs by a lot of other people. And they play songs that they decide to play right then and there. So we kind of just shot and had to figure out afterwards what can we use what can we not use and then there becomes an issue also with these songs where they're they're made from so many different pieces and they're made from so many different collaborators and we have to go down the laundry list of people you know who were involved to get them to clear it and get them to agree to to uh you know have it be in our film and and i think that Something that's helped us a lot and, and probably is, is helpful to all of us especially with with documentaries is that when you can get to the artist directly and you can talk to them about you know what and you can show them the film and, and you can see what they think about it and you can show them what it's about and how the song is used and what the song means in the film they're much more willing to play ball and 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 give it to you in a circumstance that you know if they believe in the film as well and I think that that's something that's been to our benefit, certainly, in in, in clearing, I, there's been, there's so many songwriters just in our film. I, it's kind of overwhelming how many people have been involved in the music.
1: I, I read about a, um, a comical moment in your film where um, they played Jump Around, and well, why don't you tell us about it?
6: Yeah, well, you know, so like I said, Major Lazer is a DJ group, and so they they DJ all over the world, and and Jump Around by House of Pain is one of these songs that you hear and. NBA games or NFL games or at any wedding, bar mitzvah party, anywhere you go if you play that song, people are gonna go crazy. That's how it goes. But there was this incredible moment and this happened a few times in the concert where you know they're they're playing all these songs and then suddenly they play that song and everybody knows the beginning of that song, those horns in the beginning, and and everyone sort of just all the, you know, five hundred thousand Cuban kids kind of all just stood there. <laughs> this seems like a good song. Like, no one, <laughs> no one had ever heard it before because the, the, the penetration of culture is just so... They're just so isolated, and, and particularly that era of music has just not gotten down there at all. So, you know, they hard cut and jump around, and everyone's expecting everyone to go completely crazy. And then they're all just sitting there kind of bobbing their heads really gently <laughs> to the song. So, you know... <laughs> That's right.
1: Um... For us and Steen, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how uh, you guys co-collaborated on the film that you made?
4: Well, um, Firas has been working on the project for a long time before I came in. And um, uh, we were... um, uh, There was a workshop set up in uh, Turkey. I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark. Where we went to set up by Helik, who's here in the audience... um, and uh, that's where we met basically um, and uh, the characters came over the border from from syria and um, and we started the collaboration from there and uh, we went back to Europe and they went back to syria and um, and so they upload material uh, that we reviewed and uh, Firaz has been working with them um, basically directing from afar and i've been kind of looking over the shoulder and giving my comments. um, And then the kind of tighter uh, cooperation came when we started editing, yeah.
1: What drew you to the subject matter? Sorry? What drew you to the subject matter?
4: Uh, Ah, there is a really sad war going on, and of course, um, in Europe, uh, the debate about refugees is everywhere. And uh, I think it's, um, from the European perspective and from the American perspective, it's very important to, um, to understand what's going on in Syria, why all these people coming? And, uh, and of course, also the whole strategy of the war itself, uh, hopefully to make a film that could uh, change, to, to make people witness what's going on. I think that, that is you know, the, our prime uh, goal. That's great. what we've hopefully done
1: thank you um, I'd like to go down the panelists and if you could you know, starting with Laura if you could just tell us what you're most proud about of the film that you made
3: so I got a call this morning from Mary Berry his daughter Wendell's daughter saying that Wendell would like to see the film <laughs> so that made my day that's great <laughs> Steve
4: what was the, question again? the question is what are you most proud about the film that you made um, I think uh, we made a film that uh, really grasps the hearts of people and even though it's very graphic and very rough people still see some hope in it that that the characters um, and you know they see something they can uh, identify uh, with in the characters and the, the relationships that they have and so even though that it's a, very, uh, it's a very sad story, you still come out, I think, with a feeling that, you know, humanity will prevail, or, yeah, this, this feeling. And I'm very proud of that.
1: For us.
5: I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I'm waiting to, after, like, um, this is film end. With the theater, with the like connection with the people, and I can't tell till now. I don't know.
1: So, yet to remain seen, yeah. Austin,
6: I think that I'm the most proud of um, the way being able to light up a lot of kids in Havana who probably otherwise wouldn't have been able to get their message and get their story out, and I. And even though some of the stories are very small and very personal, I um, I feel very proud that we were able to do that. And I think that now it's important, you know, if everything I think that empathy is so important. And I think that if we can make something that, you know, a lot of people who have watched our movie, they watch the concert and they see these 500,000 Cuban kids and they go, wow, that looks just like this concert I was at in Brooklyn last week. And I think that that comes as a really huge surprise to a lot of people. And, and, um, What I found is that kids everywhere are basically the same. If they're in Cuba or they're in New York, they all want the same thing. They all want to listen to music and they all want to, you know, health and they want to have fun. And I think that if we can, you know, be able to tell other people that and show other people that and in the guise of a music documentary or a concert doc, then that's something I feel very proud of.
7: You know, you start making a film and it's one thing to make the film and then the world changes suddenly and your film is suddenly very uh, relevant in a very different way. So that's happened to Motherland. You know, it's a film that takes place in the Philippines. The story is very rooted in that country. But because of, you know, what happened during the election season, it's very relevant here now. So we've um, recently, uh, we are going to partner with Planned Parenthood to do a big outreach and social impact campaign around this film. I, I don't think that would have been um, in the radar before November, and now it's, it's, it's gonna happen. So I, I'm really proud, I think, it's gonna really bring um, about a very uh, substantial conversation around reproductive justice and reproductive rights and um, access to uh, contraception you know, in this country. So I'm proud about that. It's amazing. Tom.
2: So, so I, I'm just curious, because hearing how all of your films are essentially real-life films, and I'm more used to kind of the fiction side of the world, but uh, my client's biggest challenge generally have been funding, right, money. I think there's no shortage of creativity anywhere at this festival or with any of you. You know what you want to do, and rarely, or well, I've never had that, heard of that problem, but how did you guys deal with, and we kind of heard you got lucky, right? You got a, a grant, or I don't know, you worked for the grant, but how did you guys... What did you do for financing? What was your kind of plan and your structure, and, and did you have a lawyer when you did it, or did you <laughs> find a treasure chest, end of the rainbow, <laughs> pot of gold, how did that happen?
7: Well, in the case of Motherland, it's a um, it's, uh, foundation funding, you know, Sundance, Chicken and Egg, Catapult, ITVS, POV, which is PBS, public media, it's very important, so I hope it, you know, it remains alive, um, that's that's the funding of Motherland. Uh, did I get a lawyer? Well, yeah, I brought in a lawyer. Went to do all the contracts. Right, a lot of contracts going back and forth. But yeah, it's all purely foundation foundation money. But and it's not easy. It's never easy. So fiction, nonfiction funding is never easy.
5: Um, it's long journey to like uh, to get like. Um, uh, I'm com- uh, even I I'm study, I'm, I'm study like in Western, in France, and, but I'm a Syrian. So it was like for me, it's um, something it's like you need a lot of fighting to make these people trust from somebody who's coming from Syria, want to make a film. And this is the first things. And then they need to know who are you, what's your background. Are you a tourist? Are you good man? We are you um, uh, Muslims? Are you secularized? A lot of a question behind they they didn't ask like direct way. They asked it like with well, this is like official way. And you feel in the eyes because and you, when you look to the eyes and you feel this is a question is coming like to hit you in in, <laughs> in your head and you said you can't try. It's an experimental trip, and a lot of things could happen during, like, this is journey to, to make this is deal coming. Even you have experience in making movie, even you have a, a good uh, uh, angle, like, to do the movie, but it's about the trust also. It's about how you establish the trust that make the, mm, this is like uh, the companies or funding trust in you, From their point of view, like to make you like application fill. This is application in what we want. And then sign on what we want. And then we give you money. Small money, small money, small money, small money. Mm -hmm. To to do the movie. And then when you do the movie, all want to share you the... (laughs) The winner and the... Oh, we... We was like looking from the first, mid, from the when you say the idea, oh, this is a great idea. Did you remember when I told you that? let end with this is way, and we said, oh, okay, yeah. You told me many, t- many things, <laughs> but I'm not sure about anything that you told me about it. <laughs> so this is like, um, uh, and after that, I mean, uh, in general, like when you end, like with, with, that's make you like feel okay with everything that you make the films, and this is films goes to, uh, should go to the right way. And this is other fighting. It's not just in like with the, with the big screening in the big festival. There is other trip. You have a goal, and the company have a goal, and the broadcaster have a goal. And for for me as a filmmaker, I, I, I count the film in the second. I can't delete a second from the film. Because it's a big fight. It's two years from fighting to do this. Is movie, and then when just cut second, it's like cutting your heart. Because because it's real things. Real. It's coming from here. It's not coming from from balance or oh you should be cool. This is a business and this is things. No, it's for me. It's like something from from inside, more than the business. So it's need a fight. I need a fight because. I believe that it's the connection with the real people. When you talk to them, when they watch the movie, when they watch in their eyes, this is connection. Then you say, I know. Then this is my, will be the answer on your question before.
3: I, I do feel lucky, you know, to have made the film, but I, I don't feel like the funding was lucky because um, it's exactly what you said. It's like small money, small money, small money. And I think you, you, you know, I, I was able to raise about $25,000 in donations from individuals who thought it was a good idea and then you go and shoot and then you edit and then you show that to people and you get a $10,000 grant here and a $12,000 grant here and a hundred dollar donation here, and you know, and then you go shoot again. I think sometimes I talk to people who want to make films, and they kind of imagine, oh, we're going to go get the money and then go make the film. I don't know, maybe some of you had that good fortune, but it was like that's never how it's worked to me. You know, you get a little bit, you go shoot, then you show what you have. You do the hard work, show what you have, and then people like it, and then they fund it. So I think the key is like diversifying your funding sources. Like um, I have some foundation support from Sundance Documentary Fund and. International Documentary Association, Austin Film Society, but then we did a Kickstarter for a very specific portion of the film. We wanted to have a prologue, and and my co-director said, you know, the film's good, but we need a different beginning, so we raised $50,000 in a Kickstarter specifically for that, which was great, because you sort of build community and you start a social media kind of campaign, and and that helps, and then you find families or you find an individual who might have access to a family foundation, because sometimes... the grant money is talking about, I mean, you write a grant, and six months later, you might get a yes or a no, and so sometimes it's easier to find um, families who have private foundations and pool some of those resources together, but it depends on how you structure it. If it's an investment, um, that's a different process versus if it's something you can access the foundation money or donations for, but it is. It's little tiny pieces. You build it together, and then over, what, you know, many years you kind of finally have it funded. Or you come to Sundance and you still have a bunch of deferred salaries to pay. In.
7: But some of the smaller foundations like Catapult and Chicken and Egg, they're small enough to be nimble. Mm-hmm. So you, you'll get that initial grant from them and throughout the, you know, the process of making the film, they will give you money as you need it, if you can prove you need it. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're able to move a little quicker because they're smaller. Well,
1: um, we're sort of nearing the end, and I want to leave some time for audience questions, but I uh, just want to thank each and every single one of you. You guys are doing some incredible work, making change in your corners of the world, and um, I look forward to what's ahead. Uh, I'd like to open it up for questions. Lauren. Thank you, Madu. Um Thank you for your work. I think it's very important what all of you are doing. And I just wanted to touch on, on one thing that you said in terms of um, being transparent about what the story that you want to tell. Well, what happens when you have an idea for the story that you want to tell, something happens during the filmmaking and that story changes and maybe the characters are reflected in a different light than you intended? You know, are there legal, legal implications there? Um, you know, how do you make sure that um, you know, you're, you're
7: being able to be true to the story?
2: Melda Marcos probably wasn't really happy, right, with what happened?
7: Uh, she was, and then she wasn't, you know, depending. She was very vulnerable to um, people around her who would whisper in her ear because she was like that. that she lived her life in a bubble, independent, very de- de- dependent on people who would filter things through her, you know, as all people are in power, I think. But um, in terms of the story changing, uh, when I film, I never really have a story in mind. You know, I'm hoping that the story unfolds and I'm surprised by it. And I'm willing to uh, be changed by the story as well. So uh, I have ideas and themes in my head, but the particulars of the story depend on life unfolding in front of the lens. So wherever it takes me, I I go. Which I think is, for me, as a documentary filmmaker, that's the most exciting thing. I don't want to have a set idea of how my story will end. You know, I wanna be surprised because I feel if I'm surprised, my audience will be surprised. So it, it hasn't really, um, now of course in the process of filming, like a, a previous film I did, uh, one of my characters, are, uh, what, I was filming teachers in Baltimore um, and one of the uh, um, uh, participants I was following, her husband went to prison in the middle of shooting and she was hesitant to talk about it Um, I got her to talk about it, uh, you know, um, and then when the film was done and I showed it to them, she had a problem with it. She goes, you know, that was one particular time of my life. I'm no longer that person. I've moved on. And so to try to explain to them that, yes, I think the audience will understand that that is a snapshot of your life and that, you, you know, life doesn't end when that last frame ends. So I, I invited her to all the Q&As because she just wanted to uh, respond to that p- self that was no longer her. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure I answered your question. but yeah.
6: I think you can only be clear about your intentions, you know, and I think that everything that happens afterwards, real life and whatever magic happens is just how things evolve. Um, there is never, I don't think there's ever a point where you know, you know exactly what the story is going to be and how it's going to end, but you can be clear about what spirit you're approaching the whole project with, and, and hopefully they will be sympathetic to that, and hopefully they will understand that, and understand that it's something that evolves as things go on, and as as more things are are revealed, and and they'll you know hopefully the subject will trust you enough that the uh, they'll they'll understand that the story that you want to tell and what they revealed to you is what belongs in the film.
0: Hi, I was just wondering uh, if you guys have any stories or um, situations you've been in where the funding you've gotten for a film has been conditional on how you to deal with it. For example, uh, a foundation that provides money uh, wants a, a very specific message or a very specific event shown a different way.
1: Great
5: question. Just do your film. I mean, fight to do it. That's what I do. I mean... We fight a lot to do what you want.
7: I don't think I'd ever take money for, from a foundation with very specific agenda. I, I, I don't know. But I don't think I would. I've ne- I never have. That's never been a problem, especially with the foundations I mentioned. Um, they really leave you alone. They give you artistic um, control because um, they want to support you, not only the film, but they want to support you as an artist, as a filmmaker. Uh, so that's never been a problem
5: yeah it's uh, especially about artistic um, point of view. they want to shoot you in the head what you want to make artist, artistic thing in in the documentary then you will kill the documentary with artistic We have our experience with the fish like in our in our film there is a, the opening opening scene is the fish like yeah uh, this is conversation about fish in opening film about the war in Syria, it's not, I'm sure, not what this idea could make and what the people will understand from the idea. And the whole idea of how you can tell the story in, from artistic point of view, it's hard. Sometimes it's not easy to, to make the people understand what you want. Mm-hmm. Because in general, you are filmmaker, you are coming to tell the story in artistic point of view, but... A broadcaster for them, like one of this deal. Now we we should ab- agree about it. If they we want to bo- uh, broadcast our, our film on the big channel TV, we should cut like the fish from the uh, as an opening right. scene, yeah. and uh, all the artistic f- feeling in the film we should cut it out. Okay. And this is like um, we have to agree if we want like bigger audience, or we have to say no then we will, our film, like, be in, in the theater, and then nobody will watch it just in the theater, and this is, like, oh, your dilemma. And in the, and all the time, it's with every film, with every um, story you start thinking about. Then why I, st- I go to film school and thinking about Michelangelo and thinking about all these things, and why, why just, like, I oh go, like, oh, this is life, I have my camera filming and ask some journalists who have like 30 years experience in the television as a commercial editors and ask him. Uh, this is good for you? He said, then this is footage. just write, my, my, write me as a director and edit the, the film as you want and make it for, broadcast it for the television. I think our, um, our, uh, our rule and deal, this is life as a filmmaker who thinking in the role of the art is fight, fight to do, what you want even fight to change this system in the channel tv in all the broadcaster the internet broadcaster or the the big broadcaster the television broadcaster it's 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 big battle in the end maybe you win maybe you you get some step a little bit but don't say okay i sign just to broadcast my phone i need to be famous I need to make my film for a bigger audience, because it's, uh, it's better. And sometimes they come with this um, deal. Um, this is film about your ego as an artist. You just delete the character and think about yourself, because you want to build this is artistic point of view. But this is me. This is I'm art. I'm, I study art. I study film because I want to do this. I work with this idea because I want to do this. Then there is something between me and between the issue that I I choose to do it. If that, then anyone who can do this.
3: Yes, yeah, I was, was going to say, like not so much the funding, but I'm dealing with the same thing right now. So like you might get funding that gives you final cut, but then um, you might have a distributor who's interested in the film, and they might come at you and say, well, you need to cut, in my case, um, there are sensitivities, I think, among some of the, I'm not going to say any names, but um, like broadcasters who might have a very specific idea about what's politically correct, and I'm making a kind of loving portrait of white, rural, male tobacco farmers, you know, which is not exactly in the wheelhouse of politically correct at the moment, so um, they might think, okay, why aren't there any African-American farmers? Like, can you go and find some African-American farmers? I mean, I literally have had that request. We'll broadcast it if you do that, and it's like, well, Wendell Berry wrote an entire book called The Hidden Wound about racism in America, but this farmland was marginal farmland. It wasn't plantation land, you know? A lot of these farmers didn't have money to have slaves back in when we had slavery and not every story about the rural south have to be about slavery you know I mean of course this is this atrocious part of our history but can we talk about complexities you know and I think some people are just afraid broadcasters distributors might be afraid of touching things that and the reason why we're making it is because we want to tell a story that's not being told and then the broadcasters might like it because it's a Sundance you know or it has Robert Redford's name attached to it but they don't want to touch something that they can't see in their rearview mirror that someone else has already done. So it is this. Sometimes it's artistic. Sometimes it's political. And it is a it is a thing you have to make a call of. Like, well, do you want this message to get out there? Will I compromise pieces of it, um, or not? And um, I think it's less about maybe at least from my experience, it's less about get the funding, but it's more about you know how you want to distribute it and what compromises you're willing to make.
7: Thank you. Um, In the case of Motherland, you know, uh, it's going to be on POV, and there's a lot of nudity in it. It's not gratuitous. I mean, we are in a maternity hospital, so you see a lot of breastfeeding, you see a lot of breasts, and so, POV wanted it, and it's going to be on public television, and they said, well, we have to vet it with PBS, and, you know, it's all... But they uh, they agreed to all the scenes, and I, I I was very surprised and very thankful. I mean, we agreed to a card at the very beginning, at the top of the film, saying this is for mature audiences. But they didn't ask to cut any of the, you know, because it would be a different film. You can't make the film without showing you know, some breasts because it's a maternity (laughs) hospital, for heaven's sake. So, you know, I was very surprised and very thankful that they signed off. Well, thank you to all of you for sharing your stories and
1: for being with us this afternoon. I think that everyone learned quite a bit. I certainly did. Um, Thank you.